0: You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com Welcome to Dental Talk. I'm Dr. Phil Klein. Today we'll be discussing common oral pathology and the management of common oral lesions. Our guest is Dr. Ashley Clark, a board-certified oral pathologist currently serving as associate professor, division chief, and laboratory director at the University of Kentucky College of Dentistry. She has published over 40 papers and abstracts in the field of oral pathology. Before we get started, I would like to thank our sponsor Perel Pharma, maker of Oroblock, the only aseptically manufactured articaine in the United States. They also offer a very innovative product called gockles It's spelled G-O-C-C-L-E-S. It's an innovative pair of glasses that works directly with a curing light, any curing light, to perform a quick and non-invasive examination of the oral cavity. It uses autofluorescence and it helps us identify precancerous and cancerous lesions. An excellent product to have in your operatory. Thank you, Perel Pharma, for your support for this podcast. Dr. Clark, it's a pleasure to have you on Dental Talk.
1: Thanks, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So what is one way to tell the difference between herpetic ulcerations and recurrent aphthous ulcerations and why is it so important that we know this difference?
1: Oh, this is a wonderful question. Thank you for asking that. So, a little background on um, herpes versus aphthous ulcers, herpes ulcerations versus aphthous ulcers in the oral cavity. This is, I think, the moment in dental school I fell in love with oral pathology. I thought this was the cool. I mean, this. I'm going to expose kind of you know my nerdy side here, but I just thought, how cool is it that you can tell the difference between an ulcer from a virus versus an aphthous ulcer? Based on location. And the herpetic ulcerations happen on keratinized bound tissue. So hard palate, attached gingiva. If the patient is healthy, that's the only place they're going to get recurrent herpes ulcerations inside the mouth. If they're sick, it's a different story. So, you know, if you ever find a biopsy proven herpetic ulcer on like the buccal mucosa, that patient is very sick. Um, as far as aphthous ulcers are concerned, they're on the buccal mucosa, they're on the lateral tongue, they're in the vestibule. So they are they're in the soft palate, even. So they're on that non keratinized, movable mucosa. So it's basically location. In general, the aphthous ulcers tend to hurt and the recurrent herpetic ulcerations don't really hurt. So that's another way you can tell. But the main one is location.
0: So, what's the etiology? for the most part, for recurrent apthous ulcerations?
1: That is the million-dollar question. So, we, mm-hmm. you know, there's no one answer for that, right? So there have been a million things that have been cited as potential etiologies uh, for why people get apthous ulcers. So we do know they tend to occur in kids. So about 80% of people who get apthous ulcers have their first ulcer before they turn age 30. If you get them after that, they're probably uh, syndromic in nature rather than true aphthous ulcers. Um, a major one I see in my practice is sodium lauryl sulfate. So this is the detergent in, in toothpaste that makes gives it that foaming feeling that makes it really nice in your mouth. And almost every toothpaste on the market has sodium lauryl sulfate. Now for most people, it's fine. Thins out your mucosa a little bit, but it's okay. But for those of us with aphthous ulcers, which is 20% of your patient population, by the way, um, that slightly thinning of the mucosa makes it more apt to ulcerate. So one huge way I treat aphthous ulcers, switch toothpaste. So that's a really easy fix to make a patient's life a lot better. Um, and you know, I, I ignored the second part of your question earlier when you said, "What's the difference and why is it important?" It's important because these aren't things that kill your patients; these are benign things. But these are things that cause pain to your patients, and these are things that are incredibly common. Forty percent of your patients are going to have a history of a cold sore. Twenty percent of your patients, anywhere from twenty to sixty percent, are going to have a, a history of recurrent aphthous ulcers. So it's very important to know how to treat these things. From a patient retention and even practice building type yeah, for of way, sure,
0: for sure. What yeah. about trauma? Um, how does that affect? So you know,
1: tra- traumatic ulcers are a little different than aphthous ulcers. So if I bite my cheek, I'll certainly get an ulcer there, and it's probably treated in the same way, right? Like I, I can probably put a steroid on the traumatic ulcer, and it'll go away. But aphthous ulcers can appear for no reason whatsoever, or we, well, there's a reason, we just don't know what it is. Um, so like I mentioned, um, SLS in toothpaste is a big one. Um, some people are have food sensitivities. So, you know, it might be milk, strawberries, what have you, though, that cause them to break out in ulcerations. Uh, They might be taking a certain medication that makes them more prone to aphthous ulcers. So there's a lot of different etiologies. And again, I mentioned earlier, some are associated with syndromes. So the most common one that dentists know about is Crohn disease. Um, So if you have a, a young kid who's got a mouthful of ulcers and complains of stomach issues, then that patient needs to be evaluated for irritable bowel syndrome.
0: You mentioned that herpetic ulcerations are not as painful.
1: Uh, In the inside, when they're on the inside, yeah.
0: When you see an ulcer, let's say right on the attached gingiva between 8 and 9, that is more likely to be a herpetic ulcer because it's on the attached gingiva than an apthys ulcer?
1: Yeah, so um, if you see an ulcer between 8 and 9 on the attached gingiva, It is not an aphthous ulcer just because of the location. Aphthous ulcers do not occur on bound tissue. Now, it might not be a herpetic ulcer. It's still possible that it's trauma. It could be a a traumatic ulcer. So, um, you know, there's still a differential diagnosis, but that's about it. What about
0: um, lymph node involvement? When you get a breakout of herpetic ulceration, is there Uh, a tie-in to lymphadenopathy?
1: On the first outbreak, so of a hundred people that are infected with the herpes simplex virus, only about 20% will get uh, lesions. So 80% of people that contract herpes don't even know that they've contracted it. But for those 20%, they will get most commonly what's called acute herpetic gingivostomatitis, which is always involves the gingiva and then may involve other areas. In that scenario, the patient might have some lymphadenitis. But for your typical recurrent herpetic ulceration, especially intraorally, you won't have any other manifestations, um, including pain sometimes. So I've seen before, you know, my students will say, you know, my patient was drinking orange juice and that brought on this herpetic ulcer. No, it didn't. The ulcer was there. They just didn't notice it until they drank that acidic drink. And that's how sort of painless they are. Mm -hmm. I actually don't even treat intraoral herpetic ulcerations because the patients typically don't know that they even have them.
0: Right. Now, is there a tie-in to Epstein-Barr virus with these herpetic ulcerations?
1: So the herpetic ulcerations are almost always type 1. Um, You know, I can get into uh, type 2 and and the differences, but I'll I'll try not to elaborate too much. So in the oral cavity, um, we're typically seeing type 1 herpes simplex virus. Um, Epstein-Barr virus, like you mentioned, that's herpes virus type 4. And in the oral cavity, Epstein-Barr virus most commonly causes infectious mononucleosis, which is manifesting by big tonsils, basically. Um, other things that Epstein-Barr virus can cause or uh, drive is oral hairy leukoplakia in patients who have HIV or AIDS or are otherwise immunocompromised. Um And then some rare cancers like Burkitt lymphoma and nasopharyngeal carcinoma. But we typically don't see them involved in just your regular herpetic ulcerations.
0: So based on identifying the difference between a herpetic ulceration versus an aptus ulceration, more than anything is the location, right? Not yeah. so much of how it physically looks to the eye.
1: It, it really is, it's the location. Okay. Um. Yeah. Also, I would say here, duration of lesion as well um because cancer can present as a non-healing ulcer on the lateral tongue so an aphthous ulcer should go away within a week so if any ulcer anywhere that's been there for more than 2 weeks requires a biopsy okay so i think duration of lesion is also important when discussing ulcerations because herpes and aphthous ulcers those are acute ulcers so when we're talking about acute ulcers um the location is the major way to tell the difference.
0: Right. And as far as the symptoms go for either one, what is the best palliative treatment for that for the patient? So uh, a pa- a patient comes in, they complain of that or the doctor sees it and the patient says, "Yeah, that's been really really uncomfortable. What should they do?"
1: So if patients are seeing me, right, right cuz I'm I'm seeing clinical oral pathology, so it's a bit different than um a, a dentist a general dentist who's seeing uh, patients all the time because a lot of these patients will um, not have symptoms. But if your patient is complaining of symptoms, I always like to address those symptoms. So I give a modified magic mouthwash. Now what that means is I tell them liquid diphenhydramine, which is liquid Benadryl, and a Melox. And what you can do is mix that 50-50 at home. Both of those items are over the counter and you can swish with a couple of teaspoons, one to two teaspoons, and spit six times per day. That's one way to soothe the ulcerations. Now, if you want to provide a prescription, what you can do is give the liquid diphenhydramine, the Malox, and then you can add a viscous lidocaine. Then it does have to be prescription, but there's a couple of uh, reasons why I don't always go to that. And number one is because you have to go to a special pharmacy, you have to go to a compounding pharmacy, and those aren't readily available in all areas, so it can be a little bit difficult to get. But number two, because you do have to compound it, sometimes these bottles are $10, sometimes they're $300.
0: Right, yes. So
1: I like to say over-the-counter, you know, 5 bucks each, you can make it yourself. Um, and then the second reason uh, I don't always like to give this is most patients don't like their whole mouth being numb from the lidocaine. Now, some do. So I ask them, but um, the diphenhydramine plus Maalox, uh mixed together over the counter, that will soothe.
0: Yeah. That's a really interesting remedy for pain. Yeah. Or yeah, that and
1: it, You know, I thought I came up with it. I really did. I thought, oh, I'm like a genius. No. <laughs> Um, I took my son, who had uh, hand, foot, and mouth disease, and the pediatrician said the exact same thing. You know, you can't give uh, lidocaine to small kids. So he, uh, she said, mix Maylox and Benadryl over the counter. And I thought, oh, of course, um, wow. I'm, not, I'm not reinventing anything.
0: Yeah, no, that uh, works. If that works, that's an amazing uh, little concoction there. So yeah. what are commonly overlooked lesions of the oral cavity? What are we not seeing as GPs and even specialists when the patient comes in?
1: I would say commonly overlooked lesions, the one that I lose sleep about is gingival carcinoma. Gingival carcinoma is, you know, a really strong mimicker of other entities. So periodontal disease, uh, reactive lesions. So uh, I recently had someone biopsy a gingival carcinoma and the clinician was sure it was just going to be a pyogenic granuloma but you know, that's why you biopsy. Um, So I would say the gingival cancers are the ones that, um, I wouldn't say the most commonly overlooked, but that is the, the one that sort of gives me fits. So my advice would be common things occur commonly. Periodontal disease is most commonly gonna be periodontal disease if that's what you think it is. So treat it as such, but if it doesn't respond appropriately to therapy, do a biopsy. That's that's my biggest thing. If it's not responding to your diagnosis, then let's re-examine the diagnosis.
0: If nothing changes for two weeks, that's a pretty good sign that it's time to biopsy.
1: So that is the general rule of thumb. And that's based on the fact that it takes about 10 days for something to re-epithelialize if you go back to your <laughs> histology in dental school. Mm-hmm. So that's why we have that two-week rule. Um, but yeah, in general, anything that's not healing not responding appropriately to therapy, that ought to be biopsied. What does
0: gingival carcinoma look like?
1: Everything. I mean, it just, I could show you a thousand pictures and they look a thousand different ways. Um, I would say it looks ugly. And I know that that's really not the best descriptor. Um, It can look pebbly. It can uh, be completely red. Um, Another thing about gingival carcinoma is it... Occurs more commonly in females when compared to males. And that is not true of other types of carcin- squamous cell carcinoma that affect the oral cavity. And the other thing is, it's not really associated with tobacco use or not as strongly associated with HPV or tobacco use as can- squamous cell carcinoma in other places in the oral cavity are. So you might have a healthy 40 year old female with a red spot on her gums she doesn't smoke, she doesn't drink, you know, she's been married since she was 18, let's say. she's no risk factors whatsoever. So that patient might get kicked along because she doesn't fit the profile of an, a patient who should have oral cancer. Um, so those are the ones that I worry about because that red lesion needs a biopsy.
0: And when you're flossing around that red lesion, does it cause excessive bleeding?
1: You know, it depends. Um, I would say most of the time these. Cancers do bleed um, because they're growing so quickly. They're generating their own blood supply. But, you know, periodontal disease, it bleeds too. And I'm not trying to scare anyone. And like I said, common things do occur commonly. But when it comes to the gingiva, just keep in mind, if it's not, you know, resolving with appropriate therapy, then let's let's get a piece of it and send it to me and and let's make sure it's not cancer. And
0: what's the... Before I go on to my next question, what's the prevalence of gingival carcinoma?
1: So I don't know. Um, so the way oral cancer t- statistics are compiled is it's even actually hard for me to parse out oral cavity proper versus oral pharyngeal, and that's important because the oral pharyngeal ones are due to HPV in general, and the the ones in the front of the mouth in general, ninety-five to ninety-eight percent of the time are due to tobacco and stuff like that. Um, but I do know the order of frequency. So the lateral ventral tongue, floor of mouth, now soft palate has been taken out because now soft palate's in the order of frequency because they want to include that in the back of the throat, HPV driven. But right after that, gingiva, it's, it's very next. So it is not uncommon to get a gingival carcinoma, but in dental school, we make you know three, right? Lateral okay. tongue, ventral tongue, floor of mouth, you know three. So I make my students know four. I I make them know the gingiva as well.
0: What do you want our listeners to know about oral cancer that they might not know? If you could do that in a couple of minutes.
1: Sure. Um, Number one, every patient, every time, everyone is allowed to get oral cancer. So everyone gets an oral cancer screen every time they sit in your chair. Number two, uh, young women ages 18 to 44 have been getting an increase in tongue cancer. Uh, with no risk factors, even if they are someone who smokes, that's not enough to cause cancer by the age of 28. So be cognizant. Please do a biopsy on non-healing ulcerations. And I just last week, 22-year-old female, tongue cancer, and it had been watched for over a year because she doesn't fit the demographics. So um, anything that you think needs to be biopsied, listen listen to your gut. As Dr. West Blakesley says, you know, does it pass the sniff test? If it doesn't, it, it ought to be biopsied. Um, and then again, the gingival cancer bit,
0: and the pharyngeal cancers associated with HPV. That's difficult to see, right? Because aren't those lesions really tiny, and they're kind of buried yes. back there? So, yes. what's the what do we do with those as far so as trying to get them early?
1: There, you can't really. So, there's no known dysplastic phase for HPV-driven squamous cell carcinoma of the oral cavity. That's in contrast to cervical cancers that have a very predictable progression from low-grade dysplasia to high-grade dysplasia to cancer. In the oral cavity, it's nothing, and then bam. 80% of the time, those cancers are caught by the time they're in the lymph nodes. They're so small, we can't see them when we do exams, and they're so rapidly growing that they spread really quickly. So like I said, 80% of the time, those are discovered by the time they hit the cervical lymph nodes. So what we can do is make sure we're looking at the cervical lymph nodes um, and then, Get our encourage our patients to be vaccinated um, with Gardasil nine. It protects against the two strains that cause condylomata and then seven high risk strains. Um, And we can let our patients know um, that HPV driven carcinomas. Those patients, even though they're already at stage three at least when they're discovered, usually. 80% 80% overall survival rate, five years. It's it's a very good survival rate, especially when you compare it to the HPV-negative cancers of the oral cavity, which have less than a 50% overall five-year survival rate, unfortunately.
0: What was the vaccine you mentioned?
1: The vaccine is called Gardasil 9. So the first one was Gardasil that came out, and it came out in 2006 just for girls. But in 2009, uh, it became available for boys ages nine to 26 for girls, nine to 21 for boys. Now we have, then there was Cerebex, and then now we have Gardasil 9, which is the recommended one. Um, that's been around for a few years now. That's for boys and girls, men and women, ages nine to 45. And like I said, it, it's nine valent, meaning it protects against nine strains of HPV. The two low risks, six and 11, that cause condylomata, and then 16, 18, 31, 33, 45, etc., that that protect against high-risk HPV. That's the number one thing we can do to protect ourselves from HPV-driven carcinoma. And I'll tell you, um, more men get HPV-driven oropharyngeal cancer than women get cervical cancer. So even though um, women have a higher vaccination rate because it was marketed to us for cervical cancer, men need, need it more. They get more can- HPV cancers than, than women do.
0: Yeah, I wonder if dentists are even talking about that to their patients. I doubt it. Uh, I,
1: I, I think some pediatricians do, um, but I, I don't know that general dentists do. And, you know, they the they did a, a study of family physicians and pediatricians on the medical side. Some of them didn't even know, about half of them didn't even know it could protect against oral cancer. They just knew about the cervical cancer. Right. And that's,
0: that's why I think a, a general yeah. dentist should be yeah. right up there in the forefront yeah. making those recommendations.
1: At least have some pamphlets in the waiting room. Yeah, you know, exactly. If you don't have time to mention it to every patient, at least have it advertised, like get this vaccine, HPV can cause throat cancer.
0: Yes, absolutely. So to wrap up this podcast, and it was very interesting. I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, you have so much information about this and you have such a passion for oral pathology and how it relates to dentistry and our everyday practices. So do all lesions we see in the mouth Have to be biopsy now. I know that's. I know the answer is no, but uh, we talked about this question, and I'm asking it because there's. There's got to be some hidden message here. So,
1: when in doubt, cut it out. Is is what I say. When in doubt, cut it out. Any solitary pigmented lesion that you can't prove to be amalgam, it's got to go. Any papillary lesion, fibromas, those need a biopsy. Um, Things that don't need to be biopsied are things you can for sure diagnose clinically. Geographic tongue you don't need to biopsy that because you've already diagnosed it. But we biopsy things because we cannot diagnose it clinically. It's impossible to diagnose a fibroma clinically because there's no way to tell if it's actually a neurofibroma and the first step in getting the patient diagnosed with a syndrome. So um, now, does that happen often? No. But you don't want it to be your patient that it happens to and you miss it. When in doubt, cut it out.
0: And I know in dermatology, there's Risk factors. So when you go to the dermatologist, let's say, do you have a history of melanoma? Did you anybody in your family have melanoma? Is there any medical history questions that should be asked by a general dentist uh, regarding oral pathology as far as um, higher risk patients?
1: So that you know that depends on who you talk to. So um, you know, number if tobacco use, number of years used, that's helpful information. Um, HPV status to me is unhelpful information because about 100% of people who have ever been sexually active have contracted HPV. So when my patient tells me they have a history of HPV, that tells me they're on top of going to their doctor's appointments rather than um, putting them at a higher risk because I assume all of my patients have HPV. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's important to ask about history of tobacco and and all that. Maybe HPV vaccination status would be a good thing to sneak in the medical questionnaire to bring that topic up, but um, I don't use it to make decisions on whether or not to biopsy.
0: Yeah, and so we're going to end this podcast, but I would like you to tell our audience about your biopsy service at University of Kentucky College of Dentistry. Yeah,
1: yeah, I'm the uh, division chief, and I'm the laboratory director here at the University of Kentucky. I'm an associate professor, and we offer biopsy kits for free. Throughout the country, we provide the FedEx, we pay for the mailing, and we have um, contributors. At one point we had them from all 50 states. So it doesn't matter where you are, we, we can read your tissue. And also we work with basically every health insurance that I can think of under the sun. So that's a really big help to your patients too. So if you're interested in getting a free biopsy kit, please email me at ashley.clark.dds at uky.edu.
0: There was a lot there. So run that one more time. And Ashley spelled sure. A-S-H-L-E-Y Clark is, right. Clark is C-L-A-R-K. So if you can That's repeat right. that email one more time. Um, by sure. the way, could they, just, could they go to University of Kentucky College of Dentistry and just look up oral pathology? Uh,
1: absolutely. You can Google University of Kentucky oral pathology. The reason, um, and I'm happy, just fill in the form that you heard it on this podcast. So that way I know, um, I will give you my personal cell phone number is why I wanted people to email me directly so I can give them my personal cell phone number. So um, dentists and surgeons contact me day and night with their um, pathology inquiries. I've gotten three messages since we started recording this podcast. Wow, so, that's, that's
0: impressive. Yeah, please uh, yeah. provide your email one more time and then we'll, we'll sure. call it quits. It's
1: Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y, period, Clark, C-L-A-R-K, period, D-D-S, at uky.edu.
0: Dr. Clark, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Really Thanks great stuff. Such, such an important topic that a lot of us are not really totally up on. It's just one of those things, you know, that it, it's kind of a subspecialty of dentistry in many ways that, you know, we're, we're so concerned about doing our digital denture workflow and milling in the office, and we don't hear a lot of CE on oral pathology, so it's really important that these doctors know this.
1: I'm not lying. I don't know how to place a resin anymore, so there's no judgment here.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Have a great evening, and uh, we hope you're on future podcasts soon. Thank you. you too. So much. Thanks
1: so much.